This morning we're going to be in Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 48, and we're going to make it all the way through 33. This is our second to last week in Deuteronomy. Years ago, I walked into a gym in Portland. I was a bit early, and it was just me and my AAU coach. I was probably about 15 or 16. As we were doing some basic warm-up drills, my coach made the simple statement to me, a a comment, side comment. He said, Hans, one day you're going to make me look like an amazing coach. Now, he did not know it, but in that one statement, he gave me an amazing gift, and it's etched into my brain. I can remember what the gym looked like, what he looked like, what the day was like. You see, as unhealthy as it was, my life at that point centered around the idolatry of basketball. And with that one seemingly insignificant comment, insignificant in his life, the man I had adopted as a father figure gave me an identity and the confidence in my ability as a basketball player that set me up to have a really great summer of AAU ball, and I got dozens of scholarship offers because of it. For some reason, and I don't totally know why, that moment is etched into my brain as a defining identity statement. He blessed me in a way that he never knew. Now, it became unhealthy because when basketball left my life in in, uh, great part, uh, that identity fell away as well, and that was hard for me. Unfortunately, along with that one statement and a few other positive statements that I remember vividly in my life, like many of you, I have seemingly dozens of negative voices running through my head telling me the opposite, cursing me on a daily basis. At any given point in the day, they speak to me of those negative traits. They're voices that repeat from statements made by influential people in my life throughout my 40 years, and many of them taken on by myself and perpetuated by myself. You see, statements of identity matter. Statements of identity are impactful and they're powerful. That's why we're a society that's drunk with social media. We're constantly looking to establish our identity and to have others speak into it. And that is why when relationships sour, one of the key indicators that a friendship or a marriage is failing is when something called contempt creeps in. Contempt comes when we begin to attack the other person's identity, their character, or their sense of self with an intent to insult or to abuse. We often do it out of hurt and self-protection, not knowing that we're doing it. And many of us, possibly even most of us in this room, don't even realize that these negative identity statements, these curses are running like never-ending elevator music in the back of our minds, acting as an operating system, much like Windows to a PC, guiding much of how we think, how we act, how we speak, and how we relate to one another. You ever have those moments with other human beings where you go, where'd that come from? It's because that operating system operating in the other person. It's because the operating system operating in you. Words of blessing and words of cursing matter greatly to any human being. That is why James wrote in his letter to the dispersed church that the tongue is a small part of our body, but it starts a large fire. It has great power to inflict damage. With it, we both bless and curse. Now, this morning, we come to Deuteronomy 33, and as we do, we see that the book of Deuteronomy and really the whole Torah is coming to a close along with the life of the person who wrote it, its original author, Moses, the man of God. All of his sermons are done. They've all been preached. All of his exhortations are out and have been proclaimed. His corrections have been given. And now comes the end of his life. 
And God calls Moses one last time to a mountain that he might enter into fullness with this same creator God who spoke to him out of a burning bush 40 years earlier. And it is there at that moment that the true nature of Moses' feelings towards his people come out. And one might suppose that he would be angry over years of obvious rebellion, right? You'd, You'd give the guy a little grace for that. Or maybe he'd be angry because of the years of blame shifting and false accusation by the people he tried to serve. He might even be angry that they would continue across the Jordan and he was jealously sitting on the other side knowing he wasn't going to get in. In any of those cases, I think we'd probably give him a little bit of grace seeing this story, but none of that comes to the surface in this final scene. Instead, what we see and what we hear from Moses is the heart of a father for his spiritually adolescent children, so to speak. They may have been older, but spiritually, they were really adolescent. We see anger and frustration fade away, and what is left with Moses is his hopes for his people. And just as Jacob proclaimed a deathbed blessing over his children as he stepped into eternity, the story of Moses ends the same way an aged patriarch pronouncing hope and blessing upon the offspring of God. Now, this section is one of the hardest in the Bible, in my opinion, to exegete because it is poetic blessing that is a bit um, ethereal. It's not graspable in its content. And so many commentators have tried to take certain pieces and point them to meanings that are tentative at best. That's often what you find in Western evangelicalism. Let's find the hidden Bible code, right? That's not what this is for. What the commentators can agree on, though, is that much of this blessing does not point to anything. It was just what it looks like. It was simply a blessing. And so we will not find any hidden meanings or prophetic statements in our text today. Rather, we will see something very simple and yet profound. We will see Moses speaking as the head of the family of Israel, blessing the offspring of the warrior king. Blessing the offspring of the warrior king. We're first going to step into some narrative of God speaking to Moses, that this was indeed his last moment, and then we will see Moses' deathbed blessing of the offspring of God contrasted with how he acted in a previous event. And within this amazingly beautiful poetry of blessing, we'll see both a model of how we should bless each other, as well as the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing in Jesus Christ. So let's take a look there at our first section in Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 48. 32, 48. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there, into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel." This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned from Mount Seir upon us. He shone from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones. With flaming fire at his right hand, yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. 
when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. The first thing that we're going to see this morning is this. God is the faithful warrior king who loves and fights for his covenant people. God is the faithful warrior king who loves and fights for his covenant people. Before we see more description of who God is, we're given in verses 48 through 52 the setting and context for these last moments of Moses that we're going to look at more in depth next week. But we're also reminded of why Moses is dying before moving into the promised land. Now, there are two reasons given here. Both of them come from the same story. But first, it says, because Moses broke faith with God in the midst of the people at Meribah Kadesh. So let's go back and remind ourselves of that story. Anytime the Bible gives us a hyperlink like this, we want to click on it and go figure out what it's pointed to. So why don't you go with me to Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam, that's Moses' sister, died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord! Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Looks like he's being pretty obedient so far. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? It's a little sarcastic and passive-aggressive, isn't it? Maybe just aggressive. (laughs) And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. The language used both here and in Deuteronomy first speaks to the idea that as the one who mediated the covenant between the Lord and Israel, Moses had proven disloyal to God. His job was to accurately display both sides, and he stepped in to display an angry God in a moment when God was not angry. And the second is like it. It was because Moses did not treat him as holy in the midst of the people. Now, both of these are a bit ambiguous. And what do they mean, right? I mean, sometimes uh, people have asked me, they struggle with this. He didn't really do anything that bad, but I think we miss the point if we think that. Notice very clearly in verse 8, God in personal relationship spoke to Moses and said, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, and tell the rock to yield its water. 
So you shall bring water out, he says. And Aaron and Moses, as nothing more than God's servants. You guys get that? Moses didn't have any specialty about himself. They were God's servants. And as nothing more than God's servants, they were to go and serve the people in God's name. And he had determined to meet their thirst, God had, in his great mercy, and he was going to use his servants. But what they did is they grabbed the staff, a sign of their authority, and they, Aaron and Moses, went and hit the rock twice. And the water did come out abundantly because God was and is still a God of mercy and compassion. But he calls Moses over and says, Mo, you missed it, man. You didn't get it. What was it that he had done? Well, there's a lot of speculation among commentators, but the idea that makes the most sense to me is that just as Adam and Eve were put in a place of being sub-regents to God and only had power in so much as they stayed ultimately close to and reliant upon God, Moses and Aaron were only used in so much as they humbly relied upon God and served him. Moses could have been overly distraught for a number of reasons. That doesn't deny the fact that he misillustrated uh, who God was. He, he didn't show who God was. Moses could have been heartbroken over the death of his sister Miriam in verse 1. That tends to bring a lot of stress and sadness, doesn't it? He could have felt totally valid in his anger after years of watching the rebellion of his people. But whatever the reason, when he stepped up to the rock, he disobeyed God. And worse yet, notice his word, wording. He says, should we draw water for you? Always remember to read in context, he's not here talking about himself and God. He's talking about himself and Aaron. Did the two of them bring water out of the rock? No. Moses had, in essence, removed God from the role of being the one to determine good and evil, from being the role of provider. But worse yet, it seems that Moses had removed him completely. He and Aaron were acting no different than the pagan soothsayers and sorcerers that they were supposed to fight against. And in doing so, Moses had both broken covenant commitment with God, but also failed to lift him up as the one and only holy God. There is a responsibility when you are in leadership. Honestly, it's amazing to me. I see how much damage is done by even myself or other leaders or other leaders at other churches when we wrongly mischaracterize God by not showing his true heart to people. When I am at my worst is when I am allowing my anger to tell me that I have authority in and of myself, as opposed to acting as the servant of the Lord. You see, Moses had displayed his own sinful humanity rather than the holy provision of the faithful covenant God. Now, is it okay and is it right for leaders to bring down discipline and show anger? Absolutely, but only when the Lord gives the absolute okay through his word and through his people. And as a result, Moses had lumped himself in with the rebellious generation that died on the wrong side of the Jordan River. He would not be part of the new generation to go in and conquer the land under the direction of Yahweh. And Moses learns quickly that while we may have eternal forgiveness, our actions and words matter. And when those are misused, earthly consequences often remain and take a great deal of time to heal. How much healthier would the church be if we could recognize the weight of our actions, our responses, and our words. You see, I think because of bad, errant, God is the God of a billion chances theology, we cast off sin as no big deal. Now, God is the God of a billion chances in one sense. He will forgive you at any point you turn to him. But that does not lessen the consequences and the result of misusing words and actions to hurt and destroy people.
I know that in my life, when I figured that out, when that theology shift occurred and I realized that God was actually calling me to repent in the way I use my words and actions rather than just being a typical Catholic where I sin on Saturday and I go to confession on Sunday, so to speak. I wasn't Catholic, but that was the theology I had. I realized very quickly that I needed to use my words and my actions differently, and they became a lot weightier rather than flippantly using them and asking for forgiveness afterwards. It was this weightiness that's so well addressed by James in James 3, 5 through 10. He says this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Man, the church needs to take hold of that. We as parents need to take hold of that. How often do we speak to our children and give them identity in the midst of just having a bad day and we don't follow up with giving them their true identity? This realization of the weighty consequences of the sin, especially in the words we use, should not lead us to a place, though, of paralyzing fear of making a mistake. Instead, it should direct us to the necessary work of figuring out why we relate the way we do, speak the way we do, and to look and find the dysfunction and sin within our own hearts that leads us to sin against others the way we do. Proverbs is right in that some of that will be solved by simply being slow to speak, but a lot of it has to do with introspection and figuring out why it is that we respond to other people the way we do. Now you might think, Hans, you're going the way of the therapeutic gospel, but a false therapeutic gospel says to focus on self for the sake of loving self. A godly use of therapy, of introspection, and of discipleship is to look inward so that the gospel might penetrate to the deepest recesses of our mind, body, and soul so that we can then minimize our own dysfunction with the ultimate goal of loving others well. As I tell people in counseling often, my job is not to fix you, it's to help you walk with a limp. Deep inside my dark, black heart is still a ton of sinful responses and and automatic uh, phrases that come out. But the way that I walk in sanctification and the step-by-step glory that I bring to God as I deal with my stuff internally, it comes from those things, from things as simple as therapy, as introspection, as sitting in the Word and letting it penetrate me, and then talking it over with people. These are things done not so I can love myself more, but so that I might love you more. And those of you that have been around me for eight years have seen that process. It's definitely not done. I hopefully have another about 40 years of that process. But it should be ongoing. And why is this so important for us, especially those of us who have any role in leadership? It's so that we can rightly show God is holy and good to the people around us, so that we can correctly model his covenant faithfulness and love, and that he is not against his people but for them so that when we use anger, it's appropriate. I'm not 100% sure about why the end of chapter 32 in Deuteronomy, you can turn back there with me, go back to Deuteronomy 32. I'm not sure why the end of Deuteronomy 32 flows so well into chapter 33. It seems like this major reminder of a bummer. And then 
all of a sudden Moses is blessing. But I think that one of the possible reasons might be to contrast Moses' previous curse over the people. I think that one of the possible reasons might be to contrast Moses' previous curse of the people that we just looked at with the blessing of Moses here before he moves into eternity. And our best guess from the texts we have tell us that Moses did not fight the correction of God, which is amazing. He didn't stiffen his neck. He didn't say, well, here, here's all my reasons. He didn't point the fingers at anyone else. But instead, he heard the Lord's admonishment, and he instantly humbled himself. That's hard to do, but that is a man of God. One possible show of this is the text of blessing we have before us. No longer angry, but now ready to give words of blessing from a man eager to illustrate the view of a faithful covenant God towards his children whom he loves. In the first five verses of chapter 33, Moses, here noted as a man of God, meaning a prophet, begins to bless his people by describing the source of all blessing. The Lord was the source of all blessing. He was the one who had saved them. He was the one from whom blessing came. And to do so, he relies on an often used view of God, that of a warrior king who protects his covenant people. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, he is portrayed as one who fights on behalf of his people. Our psalm from the first reading this morning, Psalm 68, is reminiscent of this same idea. It is continuing the picture that Moses gave in the midst of the song of the sea. You guys remember that? The song that he sang when all of uh, the Pharaoh's chariots went into the sea and were drowned. You remember some of those verses? Here's some of those verses. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Another one. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Kind of changes your view of God from that hippie from the 1970s Jesus movies who's in a toga and Birkenstocks and floats on the ground and has sunken eyes and never smiles, right? This is the warrior God that you follow. It's a very interesting thing. Moses portrays him as the God who comes from the wilderness in Sinai with flaming fire in his hands at the head of an army of his heavenly hosts. And as he comes here in verse, uh, chapter 33, he is ready to fight on behalf of his people. And he loved them, not just by defending them from their enemies, but by giving them his law so that they might know how to walk in relationship to him and reflect him to the nations around them. And this combination of love and fierce protection is a wonderful picture, is it not? It is the ultimate father, one who protects his children from all threats and yet loves them tenderly in their pain and trial. What an amazing picture that we as fathers need to try and live up to. And it was this love, this protection, this redemption that indicated that he had indeed become the king of Israel. As it notes there in verse 5, thus the Lord became king in Yeshurun a pet name, a nickname that speaks to Israel's call to be upright and righteous in reflection to the Lord, their warrior king. Now, having established the character of the source of all blessing, having contrasted it with the previous curse, Moses steps into the next portion here, and he speaks the blessing over his children. Let's take a look there, starting in verse 6. It says, Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people with your hands. Contend for him, 
and be a help against his adversaries. And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim, to your godly one whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his fathers and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance, and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, blessed be the Lord, uh, by the Lord be his land with the choicest of gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills with the get best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. Pate is another word for head. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun, he says, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar, in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord. Possess the lake and the south. And of Asher, he said, Most blessed be sons of Asher. Let him be the favorite of, of his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days shall your strength be. In Deuteronomy 33, 6-25, we see this. On behalf of the Father, Moses blesses his offspring to be holy priests and victorious kings. Now, the reason that we don't look into this for Bible code type things, I'll give you one example. There was a oil company, a petroleum company that uh, was run by Christians, and they read in verse, uh, end of verse 24 there, that Asher was going to dip his foot in oil. And somebody went, hey, that's a great idea. There must be oil there. Let's go and drill in the land that was given to Asher. And so they went and drilled and ended up going bankrupt because they found no oil. The problem is, is they weren't taught to read their Bible in context. Would anyone have wanted petroleum in those days? No. no, they would have seen it and gone, well, that's useless. What's the oil that they were talking about in that day and age? Olive oil, right. Could have saved themselves a lot of money. This is why we don't look at the Bible for Bible code. We look at it in context to read its original meaning. What we do see in this section is that it's very reminiscent of Jacob's blessing over the 12 tribes of Israel upon his deathbed in Genesis 49. And this was a very traditional practice you see, in the old days, and I actually see this happening now, we just don't think about it or know it happens, the fathers were the ones that gave identity. The mothers were the ones that cared and gave compassion, but fathers were given this, uh, this piece of the child's life where they would give identity. 
It was the job of the father upon the birth of a child to pronounce his name, which was very much believed to be an installation of his identity and his character. Names meant something back then. And then at death, to pronounce a blessing uh, indicating the hope of the father for the child and a statement of inheritance, that was the father's job. It was the bookends of the child's life that told the child who they were to be. The difference, though, between these, this blessing and the blessing of Jacob over the 12 tribes is that Jacob's blessing was a prophetic statement. This is the beginning of Genesis 49. He says there, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So we can take Genesis 49 when Jacob speaks the blessing, and we can look at it for prophetic fulfillment. But here, though, Moses is not speaking prophetically. And most commentators believe he is simply pronouncing his hopes for his spiritual children. He had performed his duty of proclaiming uh, a warning to them about sin and a warning about the curse. But here we get to hear the heart of the spiritual father that he wants nothing but blessing for his children. For Reuben, a tribe dealing with the fallout of major internal sin by their forefather, you can go read those stories in Genesis, uh, it was good to simply have a remnant. That's why it says, let him live and not die, but let his men be few. He just barely gets by there. For Judah, Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, Gad, Dan, Naphtali, and Asher, the blessings are statements of a desire for material and spiritual provision for victory in warfare, and they all have a similar tone. And for some reason that no one can figure out, poor Simeon is not even mentioned. But the two tribes that receive the preponderance of blessing, the sections that are the largest, are for Levi and for uh, Joseph, the priestly tribe, and the royal tribe. The first one there is uh, in 33, 8 through 11. Moses speaks of the background here of Levi, that they were to be the ones that spiritually led the people using the God-ordained divination tools of the Urim and Thummim. These were in the vestment of the high priest, and they would be used in some fashion in order to help them discern what the will of God was. But Moses, having spoken face-to-face -face with God, overruled those. But Levi, the tribe of priests, was to use them. But what set them apart was that Levi was the tribe that stayed firm in obedience. Notice that it says there, who says of his father and mother, this is verse 9, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children. You see, this tribe stayed firm in obedience to God, even when it meant going against flesh and blood family. Now, most likely, the story that is being referenced here is the story of the golden calf that occurred at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, you guys remember that story. While Moses was receiving the law from the Lord, Aaron had errantly led people in worship to the golden calf statue. And he wrongly proclaimed that this Egyptian pagan deity form was the form of the God that had saved them. So Moses came down the mountain to correct this horrific error of adultery. They were having a massive orgy and all sorts of drunkenness. And look at what happens. It says there in Exodus 32:25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and from uh, gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kills his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, 
About 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one, of, uh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. You see, so often our zeal and passion of pursuit of the Lord gets stifled because those friends and family around us are just not that into it. How many of you have heard, oh, you're kind of religious, aren't you? Well, I'm a Christian too, but I don't have to go to church every Sunday like you guys say you do. Well, I'm a Christian too, but what's this membership stuff? That sounds like a cult. How many of you heard that one when we were putting membership in? Now, I'm not sitting up here judging their Christianity. That's between them and the Lord. But many people may practice Christianity in a way that if you examine their life and look at their theology, it's not actually passionate. And unfortunately, I see so many believers who want to be passionate for Jesus get stifled by, well, my parents just, you know, they don't really read their Bible that much, so I guess it's not that big of a deal to not do it, right? They want to follow Jesus with abandon, but mom and dad or sister and brother or aunt and uncle think they might be getting a bit too zealous. That's so sad, guys. I wonder if this is what Jesus was thinking when he said in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Levi is an example of saying, no, my obedience and my allegiance to God will be above all else, even those I call family or friends, if they don't have that same allegiance. That doesn't mean that they were nasty to people and mean to them and pushing them aside. No, they wanted to show and draw people by their passion for Yahweh. And for this obedience and allegiance, Levi is blessed to be the priests of Israel, that through them Israel might know the word of the Lord and might crush the loins of those who rise up against them. He blesses them to be priests unto God. The second longest section here is uh, after Levi is the blessing on Joseph found in Deuteronomy 33, 13 through 17. Moses begins with this astounding, awe-inspiring description of God's glorious majesty. He is the one with all the heavens. He's the one with all the fruits. He's the one with all the yield. He's the God who has the treasuries of heaven and earth at his disposal to bless his children. And yet, he is the one who also stepped down and dwelt in a bush. Right there at the end of verse 16. And it reminds Israel, and it should remind us, that God loves his people so much that he doesn't stay in distant, majestic, in his majestic throne room. He doesn't stay far from us. He came to earth to initiate the people of Israel through the burning bush and a shepherd of Midian. And as New Testament believers, it should bring to our mind the fact that God, who spans the universe with his hand, loved you and I so much that he stepped into flesh so that he might know our pain and walk among us and give his life as a ransom for you and for me. The God that spans the universe, created it, also loves us enough to step into the flesh. But notice the next statement there. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. His statement of being a prince is that one day he desires that the descendants of Joseph might inherit the royal throne. 
that they might be the king at the head of the tens of thousands. Now, we know that Jesus came out of the tribe of Judah, but this doesn't remove Moses' hope for the children of Joseph and really all of Israel. Because in these two sections, what Moses is doing is he's summarizing a hope that had already been spoken in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, that they would be priests and kings reaping the blessing of covenant relationship. This is Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Unfortunately for Moses, the people of Israel would spend generations not seeing this blessing come. And it was due to their own sin, their own rebelliousness. But he would eventually see this blessing fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week as well. But for now, let's take a look there at the end and look at 33, 26 through 29. Moses finishes his blessing with this. There is none like God, O Yeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now, before we all start to think in precious moments with God holding us, cradling us like a baby, look at the next verse. And he thrust out the enemies before you and said, destroy. Okay? So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people, what's that word there? Saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. As new covenant members of Christ's body, what we see in all the blessing of Moses is the same thing he wanted for his own children. In Christ, we are blessed by the Father to be a holy priest and a victorious kingdom. In Christ, we are blessed by the Father to be holy priests and a victorious kingdom. The God of Israel was pictured as the victorious king who rides over the backs of his enemies. He comes from the wilderness to deliver his people. He leads his heavenly army riding on a chariot, weapons in his hand flashing forth power. And so when a man named Jesus of a small town called Nazareth from the area of Zebulun and Naphtali came on the scene, no one immediately equated him as the Messiah to bring forth victory on behalf of the Lord. Maybe it was true that he was in a toga in Birkenstocks and floated on the ground. I don't know. But some way, somehow, they didn't think that this was the one, at least not yet. As the Gospels proceed, we see that they eventually tell us this. But the writers of the Gospels, they tell us right from the get-go that we should take Jesus and equate him back with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Yahweh who comes from the wilderness to save his people, bringing forth a proclamation of who is king himself. And what does Mark say in the earliest existing gospel? The earliest gospel gives us an interesting picture. It says this, it says, The Spirit, this is speaking of Jesus, immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for how many days? Forty, a picture that he was the fulfillment of an obedient Israel. Not years, but days. He was tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That is an idiomatic statement that he was tempted, much as the Israelites were, yet he did not sin. He instead fought against Satan, the adversary. He did not succumb to temptation. 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And notice that it is not, you're going to die and get to go to heaven. That is part of the gospel, yes. And we'll talk about that when we step into Mark. But notice what he says. His gospel, that he states, the time is fulfilled and what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel was that the king was on a throne and that he was reigning over his people. And Jesus here is, uh, is shown by the author of the first gospel to be the true Israel. He went through the wanderings in the wilderness, being tempted yet without sin. And what did he do upon emerging from the wilderness? He came to pronounce the good news of God's kingdom, God's reign through him. Salvation and lordship had come. And once again, God had come out of the wilderness to save his people because of his great love for his people right at the beginning of chapter 3. Because of his love. Why was it that God came in, in the form of Jesus Christ? For God so loved the world. He loved you and I. To quote Deuteronomy 33.3, Yes, he loved his people. All the holy ones were in his hands. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. Deuteronomy 33.5, Thus the Lord became king in Yeshurun, in Israel, his saved people. As Jesus lived, he showed, for, he, he showed uh, the righteousness and justice of the king of the universe. He performed miracles that showed he was the provider as he fed thousands and he healed the sick. He taught as one that had even more authority than the scribes and the priests. And they were looking at each other saying, who is this guy? Well, it's God incarnate. And then three years into his public ministry, he was killed upon a cross. He was crucified as a rebellious insurgent criminal. And as a joke, they placed a sign above him that said, King of the Jews. But what they did not realize is that in that moment, Jesus was acting as the sacrifice for the rebellious sin of God's people and really all the people the world over, including you and me. In his death on that cross, Jesus paid the price for all sin, allowing the possibility of reconciliation. And then three days later, Jesus rose from death, proving that he had even the power of eternal life. He had conquered even the effects of the original sin of mankind that brought forth death. The God that had showed up in the burning bush to Moses had once again come to save his people, to be their rock and their salvation because of his great love. You see, Jesus isn't a plan B. He is the showing of the God of the Exodus. And one day, this same Jesus will come again. And how is Jesus pictured returning to establish his firm rule over the world purchased by his sacrificial death? Well, the writers of Jude and of Revelation tell us this. In Jude 1.14, it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. That's the same language that's used in Exodus or in Deuteronomy 33. The apostle and seer John saw in a vision the return of Jesus in Revelation 19. Notice the, the wording and how similar it is to the spoken words of uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 33 in the first few verses, speaking of who God is. And in the last few verses, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus himself. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the warrior king. Quoting from Deuteronomy 33, 26 and 27 again, it says, There is none like God, O Yeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. Christ is that perfect priest that takes away the sins of the people and leads us in righteousness' sake, walking in the ways of the Father God. Christ is the perfect firstborn prince of the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom through his obedience and being the first fruits of the resurrection. And from Jesus, we then become a kingdom of priests and kings, likewise inheriting the blessing of our Father now and through all eternity. Earlier, Julie and Sam read to us statements of who we are from Romans that we are the adopted children of the Most High Warrior King. In 1 Peter, it says this, but you, raise your hand if that's talking to you. Go ahead, raise it up. You, you're part of the church that is scattered and dispersed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you, Mission Fellowship, were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, visitors, if you are in Christ, this is your identity. Not what happened to you in the past. Not what you've done in the past. This is your identity. Because as we read earlier at the beginning of the teaching, we are children of God, kings and priests of God, all because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to quote from Deuteronomy 33:29, happy are you, O Mission Fellowship, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Dearest brother and sister, God is the faithful warrior king who loves you, who fights for his covenant people. And because of this, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to purchase you back into his kingdom. And so today, we can claim that in Christ, we are blessed by the Father to be holy priests and a victorious kingdom. You have no other identity. That is your identity. This is your identity because it's your purpose. To be warrior kings in a world that so badly needs people to stand up and fight for the truth. To be proclaimers of his kingdom. To be heralds of his reign. To fight back the enemy within ourselves and the enemy that surrounds us by proclaiming how great our God is. And so today... I have one request for each of us. And I think I could say command, but I'm being polite here. My one request for us is this. Let us live in the blessing of our Father, the warrior king. Now, this means two things. And I'll close with these. First, it means that you must claim it for yourself. 
If you don't know Jesus as Savior and King, then today is the day. Maybe you might say, yeah, I think he's a pretty good God. I think he was a pretty good person. Yeah, I think if I have this mental belief in him, then maybe I'll get into heaven when I die. If that is you, you are not saved and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. A follower of Jesus Christ is one who lays his life down in allegiance to his king. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. And so if you want to repent from your sin today, turn to him in allegiance and turn from what you have worshipped before and what's claimed your heart so that you can turn to Jesus. If you want to do that, then we would love to help you walk in that. We would love to walk alongside you and to welcome you into this church in a massive way. And so there will be elders in the back during the worship that would love to pray. The men standing back there near the sound booth, they'd love to pray with you and talk to you about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not just somebody who's a moral citizen of the U.S., but a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, one allegiant to Jesus Christ. If you do know Jesus today, but you recognize that you have been walking in an identity that is not that of the beloved son or daughter of the Most High God and warrior king, then today I beg of you that you'd claim it. But notice that this is not a passive action. In Deuteronomy 33:27, God's people are pictured, yes, in his everlasting arms, but this is not a place of passive rest. It is a place of active strength to wage righteous warfare on his behalf, to conquer in his name and in his spirit. When we realize that Moses wrote the Torah for the Jews that were about to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, that's when he wrote it. He wrote it when they were about to go in. We realize that one of the main reasons the Torah was written was to tell the people who the God they served was and to tell them who they were, what their identity was. Even from Genesis chapter 1 in a statement of creation, that was more so than any kind of science book. It was a statement that God is the creator and he has created the land for his people to take. That's what it was for. And they, like Adam and Eve, were God's children that were supposed to go and subdue the nations in the name of Jesus. They were the redo of Adam and Eve, so to speak. It gave them identity of who God was and who they were. It was written to tell them their identity in Yahweh. And how heartbreaking it is that many evangelical Christians in false, errant theology cast the Old Testament aside as no longer relevant to New Covenant Christians. You're literally ripping out the heart of identity for the New Covenant Christian. We need so badly to know who we are in Christ and even more so in Yahweh of the Bible in whole. So much comes when we are not assured of our own identity. When our identity is not firmly implanted, we look to external means to find it. This breeds contempt and bitter jealousy, defeat when people don't see us as we see ourselves. This breeds addiction and conflict, misuse of other people to be objects for our self-assurance. All of this is earthly, and it's not of Christ. I find as a pastor and a counselor that so many of us are held back from accepting our core identity, and this is the base of so much sin and brokenness in our own lives and against one another. And we're held back not because we don't want to accept the identity, but because we are unaware of the curses and the identity statements that we have accepted in our minds and hearts that are playing day in and day out without our conscious awareness. And yet, the Bible gives us a true identity statement of who we are 
and we glance over it as if it's supposed to have just this instantaneous effect. We need to sit in the identity of who Jesus has called you to be and who he has made you. And so this week, whether through private devotional time with Christ or maybe in conversation with a trusted brother or sister, take time to think through the errant statements of identity that have been spoken over your whole life. Identify them and give them over to Christ. Write them down and burn the piece of paper or hand them off to Jesus in prayer, something to speak the truth of your identity and to claim the identity that Christ has given you. And if you're sitting here thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about, let me give you the examples of the ones that I hear in counseling all the time. You're an idiot. You're not smart enough. You're the outsider. No one likes you. You should have saved the alcoholic in your family, but you failed. You should have saved the narcissist in your family, but you failed. You were the glue that's supposed to hold your family together, even though it's totally dysfunctional and you failed. Does those sound familiar? A lot of those are what the enemy uses every single day to keep you in his clutches. And so this week, take stock of those. Let them play out into conscious thought so you can write them down and you can give them over to the Lord so they can be nailed to the cross along with the sins you've done so that he can give you your identity. If you need help, we as elders would love to walk with you through that process of figuring out what those voices are. Dear brothers and sisters, today, if you haven't heard it before, I want to give you your identity. And later, when Tyler comes up and he gives the missional prayer, he's going to speak very clearly to you as well. You, Mission Fellowship, are victorious children of the Most High God. You are blessed and loved in him through his son, Jesus Christ. You are a kingdom of priests in service to your God. I beg of you, walk in that identity. Secondly, not only do we need to accept this identity, but we need to remind one another of it. Especially parents, our own children. You will notice throughout the New Testament that Paul, Peter, and the rest of the apostles utilize amazing amounts of Old Testament imagery to inform the fledgling church what their identity was and is in Christ. We need to be reminded daily who we are in Christ. And we can help one another in that through both words and actions. Parents, remind your children daily who they are in Christ. I'm so thankful for my three kiddos. I'm embarrassed two of them that are back there right now. I didn't ask them if they could do that. But John Thomas, which means God's gift of a twin. See how names mean something? And Jaden Marcus. Jaden means God has heard our cry. Both of those boys are strong, strong men who are trying to follow Jesus. And they're also very sensitive young boys who love to love people. And I love to tell them that. They were in a tournament yesterday. Uh, for Taekwondo, and it was so cool to watch the way that they interacted with other kids and the way they celebrated their successes and cared for one another in their defeats. And I'm thankful for my children because of the model they are for me. I'm thankful for my daughter and the zeal with which she pursues life. If you don't know who she is, she's the one with unicorn and pink everything because she loves life. 
And I'm thankful that we can speak identity into these three children. And often they speak identity into us and help us. That's what we need to do to be a family of Christ that loves one another. Parents, remind your children daily who they are in Christ. Take stock of the 50 times you criticize your children so you can speak 250 times what their identity is, not just their criticisms. I know that I need that. I'm a 40-year-old man in a giant body, but I'm a small little boy who needs people to tell me that I'm okay and that I'm a child of God. Do you need that as well? I think all of us need that. Let's be a church that does that for one another. Spouses, remind one another who your spouse is in Christ. Don't cut them down anymore. They do that enough in their own heads. I know I have failed at that for a long time, and I'm trying harder to do that with my wife. Friends, encourage one another to listen to the identity that the Father has spoken over us today. Today, let's accept blessing as the offspring of the warrior king. Let's accept blessing as the offspring of the warrior king. Worship team, you can come on up. Let's pray.